Well, hello. Good evening, everyone. It's good to be with you here tonight. I want to say hello. Uh-oh. I want to say hello and good evening to those of you joining us online. We're so glad you could join us as well. And I also want to give a warm welcome to those of you who are here from other churches around the city. We're so glad you're here with us tonight. Uh, welcome. Please make yourself at home. You know, as uh, pastors and leaders, we've been looking forward to this weekend for many, many months. And we trust and we believe that the Lord is going to use this time in a mighty way, not only in just your individual life, but also in the life of this church. You know, if you would have asked me eight years ago when I first started on staff here uh, at the church, um, hey, Nick, could you, uh, you ever see Lemworth hosting a Holy Spirit conference where we bring in a guest speaker to talk about controversial issues on the personal work of the Spirit? I probably would have looked at you like you were crazy. Like, what in the world are you talking about? And yet, here we are, eight years later, doing that very thing. And personally, I couldn't be more excited and thankful to the Lord. And not only am I excited and thankful that we are doing this conference in general, but I'm particularly grateful and excited for our guest speaker this weekend. I think we've shared uh, this with our church before, uh, but it was Sam's little book called The Beginner's Guide to Spiritual Gifts that we went through as elders, which began this whole process of us discussing and debating the gifts of the Spirit. With us eventually coming to the place as pastors where we were, uh, we said we just think the scriptures teach that all the gifts are available for today. And not only are they available, but in, uh, in obedience to the scriptures, they are to be eagerly pursued and desired. And so because it was Sam's book which helped start us on this journey, it's only fitting that he be the guest speaker at our first ever Holy Spirit Conference. Dr. Sam Storms has spent the last four decades in ministry as a pastor, professor, and author. He's the founder of Enjoying God Ministries. He, until recently, uh, his, his recent transition, served as the lead pastor for preaching and vision at Bridgeway Church in Oklahoma City. He's written over 25 books on a wide range of topics, although many of them have been specifically on the gifts of the Spirit. Sam serves as a member of the, uh, on the Council of the Gospel Coalition. He is a past president of the Evangelical Theological Society and currently serves on its executive committee. Um, Sam lives in Oklahoma City with his wife, Ann. Uh, I think if I got it right, you guys just celebrated your 51st wedding anniversary. Is that right? That's amazing. Uh, they have two grown daughters and four grandkids, which he just showed us a picture of, of the newest one. And man, he's cute. Uh, you're a lucky guy there. Um, and even though uh, Sam is an Oklahoma Sooner alumni and fan, even still, won't you give him uh, a warm Lemworth welcome as he makes his way up here to the stage? Thanks. Well, thank you, Nick. I don't know why you had to throw that in there at the end. <laughs> Probably in remembering when Baker Mayfield planted the flag. <laughs> I, I'm so sorry. <laughs> oh, well, it's good to be with you all tonight. Um, I've been looking forward to this. Never been to Columbus before, so it's a joy to be in your city and in your church. So let us begin with a word of prayer and ask for the Lord's help and his illumination tonight. Father, 
We have just sung of your greatness, of your mercy, of your faithfulness, your kindness, of your power. And we ask that you would work in our hearts tonight. Lord, I pray that the Spirit of God would stir up in the hearts of every single individual, man, woman, boy or girl, that you would give us a fresh hunger for the greatness of all that you are for us in Jesus, that we might see you and know you. Lord, we pray Psalm 119, verse 18. Open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things in your word. Give us insight. Guard me from speaking any error and build us up in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray, amen. Well, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but I've got some disturbing news for you to begin tonight. There has been a horrible divorce in the body of Christ. And I'm not talking about a divorce between a man and a woman. I'm talking about the divorce, the separation between word and spirit. Word and spirit, word, the authority of God's inspired canonical scriptures. The spirit, the third person of the Godhead, were married by God, wedded by him. He officiated at the ceremony. It was his desire that they be merged. He bound them together, never intending that we would put asunder what he has joined together. But sadly, we have. We hear a lot about uh, divorces in families, and we have all probably experienced it to some degree or another, either ourselves or people we know. And we so oftentimes hear the reason was incompatibility. And I can't tell you the number of times I've been told that word and spirit are just simply incompatible. They have irreconcilable differences, and they will never be wedded together again. Now, what am I talking about? I'm talking about those Christians who identify with what we might call the word camp. They're very theologically driven. They're very highly motivated by deep doctrinal truths, and they're suspicious of emotion. And then there are those in the spirit camp who highlight the person and power of the Holy Spirit, and they seek after and seek to practice His gifts, and they're fearful that the word camp will quench that spirit. And the question is, is it actually possible for people in the 21st century in local churches to see a wedding, a convergence, a merging, a unified front between word and spirit? And my answer to that is yes. So what am I talking about? I'm talking about born-again followers of Jesus who are gospel-centered, who are intolerant of manipulative excess or fanaticism, and yet also delight in all the gifts of the Spirit, in praying for the sick, and prophesying to the edification and encouragement of believers in the body of Christ. I'm talking about Christians who are exhilarated by complex biblical truths, and at the same time comfortable with the deep delight and the affections of their heart as they worship the Lord. Now, I've been told many times, you can't live with the expectation that the Spirit of God is going to do anything in your life of a supernatural nature. That is for a bygone age. And I'm told that we simply need to focus on the Word of God, but yet it is the Word of God that tells me to live in expectation of the supernatural work of the Spirit. 
Now, why is this divorce taking place? What's, what are the reasons behind it? Well, just very briefly, there are primarily two. The first one is the simple fact that most people are hardwired for one or the other. There are just some people whose personality, whose orientation is more intellectual, more cerebral, they're more theologically driven, and yet there are those who are more um, in touch with their affections and their emotions and the experiences that they have with God. And it's hard to see that that can actually coexist in the same individual soul. But the other reason why this divorce has occurred is probably even more foundational. Fear. Fear. Those in the word camp are terrified of fanaticism. They are terrified that if they open themselves to the Spirit, they will end up neglecting the Word of God. They are afraid of emotionalism. They think that people in the Spirit camp, they're going soft on doctrine. And those people in the Spirit camp are terrified of an increasing intellectualism, a judgmentalism, a pharisaical, highly intellectual and arrogant approach to Christian living. And the two simply cannot envision walking side by side. Well, I stand before you tonight as a living testimony of someone who believes firmly in and lives and ministers in the power of both Word and Spirit. And I refuse to live with that divorce any longer. Now, I've been asked tonight specifically to share a little bit of my journey and how I got to where I am now. How did all this transpire? Now, the question might be asked, why tell your story, Sam? Well, for the first reason is because I was asked to. <laughs> the second reason is because I want to put flesh and bones on what you read in God's Word. We're going to look into God's Word later this weekend and on Sunday morning, but I want to put real-life flesh and bones upon the principles and the truths in Scripture. Furthermore, I really do believe that when you hear what God has done in one person's life, you are encouraged and built up to believe that it can happen in yours as well. So, some of the things I'm going to share with you all tonight are going to sound really odd and really strange. And the reason is because they are really odd and really strange. <laughs> and they were to me when they happened. And I don't know how to account for this, folks, other than one of three ways. Number one, I'm a pathological liar, and I've made up all of this. Or secondly, Satan has done it. He's responsible for the supernatural encounters I'm about to share. Or third, God did it. The Spirit of God has been at work and has produced these things in my own life. So I'll leave you with those options. Only you can decide for yourself. Now. I was raised in a Southern Baptist home, attended Southern Baptist churches all my life until I went to theological seminary in Dallas. And our beliefs about the Holy Spirit were very narrow and limited. When we talked about the Holy Spirit, the only thing we had in mind was His empowering presence to help us resist sin and temptation. Uh, the Spirit was there to conform us to the image of Jesus, of, of course, which is absolutely glorious. But we never even thought much other than to ridicule it about the reality of charismatic gifts. My approach to the Christian life, I 
have to confess openly to you, for many years was driven more by fear than it was by faith. Fear of being identified with those that I thought were theologically weak and who were an embarrassment to Jesus and brought reproach on the name of the gospel. And so I lived in this constant dread of embracing or believing anything that might associate me with those people, and you probably know them by name, that you've seen on TV or on the internet or read about them in the news. And then at the very beginning of this journey, I thought something that just suddenly came to mind about the Apostle Paul, that the man who wrote Romans, the most theologically complex letter in the entire New Testament, the man who wrote Romans said in 1 Corinthians 14, I thank God I speak in tongues more than you all. Now, if Paul could do that, why can't we? So. I want to talk to you about my journey. Now, as I said, I was raised a Southern Baptist, and in the Southern Baptist churches where I grew up, we didn't talk about the Holy Spirit. I didn't even know if there was a Holy Spirit. But my first encounter with the supernatural work of the Spirit happened when I was 11 years old. We were living in Midland, Texas, way out in the western part of the state. And I can distinctly remember, it was almost as if it was yesterday, it has never left my conscious thought. I was lying on my bed late at night, 11 years old. I had the most excruciating, painful headache I had ever had and have never had anything like it since. It must have been a migraine, even though I didn't know what the word meant then. I remember lying in bed, and I was so terrified of, of moving, I, didn't, I couldn't even call out to my parents to bring me an aspirin or, or a Tylenol or something to help alleviate the pain. It was just paralyzingly horrific. And I did what 11-year-old boys do. I said in my mind, not even with my mouth, God, I'm going to count to three. And on three, I want you to heal me. I can't bear this any longer. And I said one, two, and when I said the word three, folks, the pain instantaneously disappeared. Not gradually, not progressively, as if aspirin were bringing it bringing about a healing. I mean totally devoid of any discomfort. I almost felt euphoric in the moment. And in fact, I remember lying there. I said, don't move, Sam, because it'll come back. <laughs> and then I started moving my head. And then I was absolutely startled by the fact that there really is a God who heard the silly little prayer of an 11-year-old kid. And he answered it. Now, not much of a spiritual nature happened to me until the summer of 1970. It was after my freshman year at the University of Oklahoma. I was in Lake Tahoe, Nevada on a summer project with Campus Crusade for Christ. It now goes by the name of Crew. And toward the, by the way, if you haven't seen the movie Jesus Revolution, you should go. Uh, I was in Southern California and Nevada that very summer when it all broke out. That was the summer of the um, the anti-Vietnam War protests, the summer, I think it was May 4th, in fact, that uh, the students were killed at Kent State University. It was the summer that Hal Lindsey's book, Late Great Planet Earth, was released. I even spent time in Berkeley, uh, where the, uh, Cal Berkeley was located, in the presence of what was then called the CWLF, the Christian World Liberation Front. And boy, if you don't know, that wasn't a clash of cultures. This little Southern Baptist boy from Oklahoma 
with the Jesus freaks of the CWLF, it was enlightening to say the least. Well, on the last night of our project, we were invited to a Bible study. And there was a man there, you probably would never have heard his name, it was Harold Bredesen. He was a Lutheran pastor, very instrumental in the charismatic renewal in the 60s and 70s. Had a clerical collar on, which kind of offended me because I was a Southern Baptist. And uh, he spoke that night on the gift of tongues, and I was infuriated. My father had taught me that that was lunacy. And I remember after the session, I went up and I engaged him in a little bit of a debate. He was very kind and generous. He prayed for me, gave me a book to read. And for some reason, I read the book, and as I returned to the University of Oklahoma, I began to say, Lord, I don't think this is real, but if it is, I want it. I want more of your power, more of your presence in my life. So every single night for about five weeks, I would leave my fraternity house and walk two blocks to the McKinley Elementary School parking lot, sit down underneath this tree, which is still there after these many years, and I would pray. I would say, Lord, I don't know if this is real, but if it is, I want it. I don't know what to do. I'm just sitting here waiting. And after five weeks of doing this, seven nights a week, without warning, I wasn't praying banana backwards over and over again. I wasn't saying a word. I got invaded by the Holy Spirit and began to speak in words that I had never spoken before. It was as if the veil between heaven and earth had been pulled back and the two converged in that moment in this, at that time, 19-year-old college sophomore. I remember racing back to my fraternity house, called uh, the uh, staff member with Crusade, who was my mentor, said, you got to come over here right now. Didn't say anything else to him. He drove up. I sat down in his car. This is really how it happened. First words out of his mouth was, I know what happened to you tonight. I said, what? He said, you spoke in tongues tonight. <laughs> how in the world did you know that? He said, I don't know. I guess God just revealed it to me. And then he gave me some very bad news. He said, if you ever do it again, you can't be a part of Crusade. At that time, Crusade had a policy against charismatic gifts. Now, I was the student leader on campus. I led all the meetings, was involved with the staff, and it shut me down. It terrified me. Folks, I went 20 years without praying in tongues because I was terrified of what others would think, that maybe they would conclude that I was a, a fruitcake, a nut. Well, in 1973, I went to Dallas Theological Seminary. If you know anything about Dallas Seminary, great seminary. I loved my time there. But Dallas is confessionally what we call cessationist. They believe that all these miraculous supernatural gifts ceased in the first century. Now, don't confuse cessationism with secessionism, all right? Secession is what the southern states did in the 19th century, right? We're talking about cessation, the ceasing of these gifts. And that was what we were taught at Dallas Seminary. I respected my professors. I bought into their arguments. The only thing was I didn't bother to look to see if that is actually what the Scriptures taught. And then in 1987, I was on the campus of Dallas Seminary, and I happened to bump into a good friend of mine who'd been a classmate of mine, a man by the name of Jack Deere. Some of you may have known of Jack or read his books. He had been serving as a professor of Hebrew and Old Testament for 12 years at Dallas. And I said, Jack, what's going on? He said, well, I just got fired. <laughs> what? Turned out 
the seminary did not uh, care for his new view of the Holy Spirit and gifts and had released this tenured Old Testament professor. Jack and I began to debate. I was still a cessationist. We began to argue there on the campus standing outside the bookstore. And for every argument that I put forward why the gifts weren't operative today, Jack asked me one simple, terrifying question. Where's that in the Bible? Where's that in the Bible? To which I had no answer because it ain't in the Bible. I believed those things because my professors, whom I respected, had told me they were true. Well, a couple of years passed, and I was with Jack once again in New Orleans at the annual meeting of the Evangelical Theological Society. It's a society of about 4,500 evangelical scholars who gather every year and basically try to out-argue one another. We had dinner that night, and I shared with Jack the story I've just shared with you all about what had happened back in October of 1970 and what had happened for the last 20 years. And Jack said, Sam, are you familiar with 2 Timothy 1.6? I said, well, no, remind me. He said, that's where Paul said to Timothy, his spiritual son, kindle afresh the gift of God that is within you through the laying on of my hands. And the imagery there is that the spiritual gift that Timothy had received when Paul prayed for him was once a burning fire, but it had died down and it was a barely glowing ember. And Paul's saying, fan it back into flame, kindle it afresh. And Jack laid hands on me and prayed for me, and by God's grace, God did that very thing, and the gift of praying in tongues returned. And I have never ceased to pray in that manner since. Now, two months later, it's 1991, January, Jack had invited me to Anaheim, California to a vineyard conference. There were about 7,000 people present at the Anaheim Convention Center. And I was confronted with, again, something I had never seen before. I couldn't believe these people. They prayed everywhere for everyone for any reason whatsoever. And I thought, I like that. They had an unashamed affection for Jesus, extravagant affection. I said, I want that. And on the second day of the conference, Jack said, I want you to come with me. I want you to come downstairs. There's a little side room, and some people are gathered there. He said, just sit at the back of the room. In fact, the room was about the size of this middle section. About this many people were there, and I sat on the very back row. He said, just sit there and watch and learn and listen. We'll talk about it later. For the next hour and a half, a group of about five or six individuals up at the front would point to individuals and call them forward, and they would prophesy to them. Now, I'd never seen prophecy before. I didn't know if they were right or wrong. I didn't know any of the individuals. After an hour and a half, literally, I was the only one left, way at the back. And a gentleman pointed at me and said, Sir, would, would you come up here? So I went up, I sat down. The only thing I had was a name tag that said Sam, nothing else. If you'd seen this guy's picture in the dictionary, under the word prophet, you would, you would understand. He looked the part. <laughs> and he peered into my eyes. He said, I'm going to tell you what you've been praying in your hotel room the last two nights. And he quoted my prayer to me verbatim, not paraphrased, not summarized, verbatim. I've got the, you remember cassette tapes? <laughs> I've got the cassette tape 
of that prophetic utterance. Now, I've got a great poker face. I didn't let on. I didn't jump up and down. I sat there stone-cold faced. Inside, I'm churning, thinking, what in the world have I just encountered? And then he described for me, he said, you're a pastor. I hadn't told him that. Let me tell you what's been going on in your church. He began to describe the events that had been transpiring in our church, some of the struggles we were having. He said, they're going to resolve themselves, which they did. That night, I went back to my hotel room, and folks, I got down on my hands and my knees. But it wasn't to pray. I looked for a bugging device. (laughs) I thought, Jack Deere bugged my hotel room, passed off the information to this guy because they want to lure me into a cult. And I remember finally I looked under the bedspread and under the counter and under the sink and the bathroom, and then I thought, wait a minute, Storms. Did God hear your prayers? Yeah. Could God have communicated those to this man so he could speak them back to you to do what 1 Corinthians 14, 3 says, to encourage you and edify you and console you? I thought, well, duh, yeah. That was my first encounter with the spiritual gift of prophecy. But what was going on in my life at the time wasn't just about supernatural charismatic gifts. The Lord awakened my heart to the profound affection that he has for his children. And I was brought into an awareness of a text of Scripture that I had never seen before, Zephaniah 3.17, which says that God sings over his children in joy and delight. I could envision God opening his mouth and shouting in anger at me, spewing forth his disappointment in how I had lived. But the prophet says he rejoices so intensely that he breaks forth in singing over me. And I came to the point where I I began to feel the affection of my Heavenly Father. And combined with my new encounter with the power of the Spirit, my life and my pastoral ministry was forever changed. Now, let me back up just a little bit to October of 1990. So this is about a month before I had that dinner with Jack in New Orleans. If you don't believe in the providence of God, you will now. I am preaching through the book of Acts at my church. It's a a Friday morning. It's about 10 a.m. And I've come to Acts chapter 3. And so I'm reading the story about how this paralytic who never walked a day in his life is instantaneously healed in the name of Jesus. And I really hit a wall. I said, God, how in the world am I going to preach this on Sunday? I'm not sure I even believe that you do that sort of thing anymore. Am I just going to talk to these people about past history? What relevance does it have for them today, especially for those who are sick and afflicted and paralyzed and have a variety of different diseases? Folks, God is my witness. No sooner were those thoughts and words out of my mouth than to knock on my door, my secretary walks in with an envelope in her hand. She had the strangest look on her face. She said, sorry to interrupt you, but the mail came early. In my eight years in that church, the mail had never once come before noon. Not once. That day it came at 10 a.m. And she said, and there's only one letter. She handed it to me and walked out. I wish I had brought the envelope with me. I looked at it. I could tell it was from overseas. In fact, the postmark said Wales. Wales? I don't know anybody in Wales. And I opened it up, and it was a letter from an elderly gentleman 
who had somehow gotten a copy of a book I wrote against divine healing, which is now gloriously out of print. <laughs> and in this letter, he talked about how I appreciated what, some of the things you said, but he said, I'd just like to you know, suggest that maybe you might have missed it a little bit. And in the envelope was a brochure, about two or three pages. I wish I'd brought it with me. And it was the story of a lady named Marjorie Stephen. And in the letter he said, Marjorie Stephen is still alive, as of October of 1990. In 1955, she was stricken with a severe case of multiple sclerosis. I wish you could hear her describe her condition. She had to be lifted in and out of a wheelchair. She couldn't walk. In fact, her left leg was entirely useless, as was her left arm. She had to be strapped into the wheelchair lest she fall out. Uh, she had no sight in her right eye. She was completely blind and very little sight in her left eye. Her fingers were turned inward, as were the toes on her feet, so she couldn't walk. And on February 4th, 1960, so just about five years into her affliction, she had a dream in which the Lord Jesus Christ appeared to her and healed her. And when she woke up, she expected to be healed, but she wasn't. And she heard a voice that said, wait a little longer. Five months later, on July 4th of 1960, her parents had brought her breakfast. They'd set her up in her bed. They left the room. She's lying there and was instantly and irreversibly and totally healed. She said her left arm began straightened out, her fingers straightened out, the toes on her feet straightened out. She could suddenly see through both eyes 20-20. She stood up and got out of bed and cried out to her parents to come up to the room to see her. And then she realized, they're going to freak out when they see me. So she sat back down until they arrived and she shared what had happened. And to that day, so that was in 1960, I received this letter in October of 1990. She was still perfectly and totally and completely healed. Now folks, think about this for a moment. How in the world did this man in Wales get a copy of my book and then happen to send a letter that took three weeks to arrive and just happened to arrive at 10 a.m. on Friday on the very day I'm battling over Acts chapter 3 and whether or not I really believe God does this sort of thing. You don't believe in the providence of God orchestrating human events? I do. All right. I want to move on just a few years to 1993 in March. Jack has invited me to another conference in Houston, Texas. And while I am there, on the last day of the conference, a man who was ministering began to prophesy to people. There were about 2,000 people in the auditorium. It was a huge auditorium. I was sitting toward the back on that side, and I had met this man at lunch, only just introduced, and he knew nothing about me. And he pointed out to me, and he said, you, Sam, we, had, we met earlier today. Stand up. He began to prophesy to me. And none of it made sense. He was talking about, I need to get a U-Haul and pack up because the Lord's moving me on. And I'm thinking, guy, you're out of your mind. I'm not leaving my church in Ardmore, Oklahoma. I love it. I love the people there. What do you mean I'm moving, get a U-Haul? You're crazy. And then he began reading through Isaiah 58. And he came to verse 11 and he just stopped. By the way, I have this all on videotape. Remember VHS tapes? I'm dating myself. 
I've got it all on, on tape. And he stopped and he said, you're asking yourself right now, I'm just not p- picking on any of you back here, but he was pointing at me, said, you're asking yourself right now, which I was, if I do obey the Lord and, and follow his lead, who's going to take care of me? And he said, Sam, I want you to know that Isaiah 58:11 is God's word for you. The Lord will guide you continually, satisfy your desire in scorched places, make your bones strong, and you'll be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And then he kind of closed the parentheses on that and um, finished his word, and I sat down. Afterwards, Jack Deere came up to me. He said, that probably didn't mean anything till you did it. I said, no. And then he said something odd. He said, well, get a copy of the tape, and in about five months, it will probably mean something to you. He didn't know he was prophesying. Well, a lot had transpired from the time of that conference in March until August of that same year. And what had transpired was I received an invitation to move to Kansas City to join a church staff there. It was among the most difficult decisions I had ever made. So it's August 18th in 1993, and we're moving from Ardmore, Oklahoma, where I was pastoring, to Kansas City. I'd said goodbye to my sister and her family. They lived in the same community. We'd wept in each other's arms. I couldn't believe I was leaving this church that I loved and the people that loved me. We pulled out onto I-35, heading up to Kansas City, and folks, I had the closest thing to a nervous breakdown I've ever experienced. I began to hyperventilate. I was weeping. My precious daughter, Melanie, is 14 years old, is sitting next to me, and she thinks her dad is going nuts. And I finally said, Melanie, this is the biggest decision I've ever made. I said, I I don't know if I can go through with this. And she was so distraught by my condition, she began to open this present that her teacher had given her as a going away gift. And she opened it up, pulled all the paper off and opened this box, and she pulled out this little verse a day calendar, you know, the kind you put on your kitchen counter and you got a verse for each day of the year. I said, honey, this is August 18th, it's the biggest day of our lives. What's the verse for today? I still have it. It's held together by Scotch tape. August 18th, the Lord will always lead you. He'll give you good things and keep you healthy. You'll be like a watered garden, Isaiah 58, 11. There are approximately 30,000 verses in the Bible and 365 days in the year. I'm no statistician, but what are the odds of that one verse appearing on that day, happening in that very moment? <laughs> I slammed on the brakes. I pulled off on the side of the highway. I got it. I ripped it out of the gift. I've still got it. I was running down because my wife and our younger daughter were in the minivan behind us. I'm going, Isaiah 58, 11, Isaiah 58, 11. <laughs> Ann was thinking, he's changed his mind. We're staying in Oklahoma. <laughs> I thought, amazing. The word that came in March. Jack's word, five months. Five months to the day that this happened. And the way the Lord orchestrated that to confirm his guidance and his provision by the way, we had another incident with Isaiah 58:11. This is now about uh, three or four years later. We're in Kansas City. My wife is the receptionist at the church. And we had a school, a K-12 school, and they were trying to hire Ann to be a, a teacher because she had taught school for many years in Dallas. And we were agonizing over whether or not she should accept the job. We had prayed for days. And on Tuesday night, the headmaster called us at 10 o'clock and said, I've got to have an answer by 11 tomorrow morning. Because if you're not going to take this job, I'm going to offer it to somebody else. 
So the next morning, I went to our 10 o'clock prayer meeting. It's about 10.30. And all of a sudden, this idea came into my head. Go check your mail. Mail never came before 1 o'clock. I walked out, went into the office where Ann was. She said, something strange happened. The mail came early today. There's something in your box. Happened again. I pulled it out. It was a letter from a lady who had visited Kansas City before. She knew nothing about us. And it was a kind of a hallmark card. And the script that was in it, as I read it, was so crystal clear that Ann wasn't supposed to take that job. She read it. She came to the same conclusion. And then I looked at the bottom of that card. Emblazoned on it was Isaiah 58, 11. How God, once again, providentially and supernaturally was guiding us. Now, back up to March of 1993. All right, this is the same month in which I got that word in Houston. About a week after I had returned home, a young man who was a seminary student at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School up in Deerfield, Illinois, called me, very nervous. He said, Sam, I don't typically do this, but I just got to share with you a dream I had last night. And he began to describe this dream. And the two most vivid things in the dream were, he said, there was a pickup baseball game in your backyard. And a ball had been hit and it had broken a window in the, in the upper level of your house. And he said, and I also saw in the dream a lady sitting in a rocking chair. I couldn't see her face. She was shrouded in darkness. She was rocking back and forth and back and forth, crying out, heal me or kill me, heal me or kill me. I didn't think much about it until three days later. I come home on a Saturday morning from preparing my sermon. Ann's parents were there. My wife is Ann. Her parents were there and her nephews and our daughters, and they were in the backyard playing baseball. There had never been a baseball game in our backyard. They're playing t-ball, actually. So I walked up to Ann's dad. And I said, what's going on? He said, well, we're just surveying the damage. I said, what damage? And he pointed, we had a huge, tall, two-story house with another story with little bitty, tiny storm windows. And from the far side of the backyard, this little scrawny six-year-old kid had hit a t-ball, a soft little squishy t-ball, and had shattered the outer storm window and it had lodged between the storm window and the inner pane of glass. I, I never made the connection with that young man's dream. All I'm thinking about is what it's going to cost me to have to repair that. <laughs> Until a couple of days later, Ann wakes up at 3 in the morning. She just lurches up in bed. The dream, the baseball game, the broken window. And I thought, oh, my gosh, what is God saying to us? Now, there's more to this story. I need to back up to 1974, my second year at Dallas Seminary. We'd been married two years. I know this all seems scattered, but I'm going to tie it all together. It's our second anniversary. We go out to dinner, and then we reserved a motel room for the night. And something happened that night that deeply wounded my wife. I was utterly oblivious to it. I had no idea that I had done. I've been totally faithful to Ann for 51 years, never wandered in any way, shape, or form. But that night, I did something that deeply wounded her, and I had no idea I'd done it. By the way, if you're wondering what I did, I walked in and I turned on the TV and sat down and watched a baseball game. <laughs> Guys, don't do that on your second anniversary when, or your third. 
when you've rented a motel room with your wife. Don't do that. She felt so rejected, so unloved and unwanted. I had no idea I was a stupid, immature young man. I didn't know what I'd done. But she internalized that, and she made, she didn't know what it was at the time, but now she knows she made an inner vow. And basically she said, God hasn't made you happy, and Sam hadn't made you happy. You can't trust either one of them. And from that day for the next 18 years, she got up every day and she heard the same voice in her head. God hasn't made you happy. Sam hasn't made you happy. And she said she would see this hand with this finger beckoning her. You come with me, I'll make you happy. And she didn't realize at the time that it was a demonic spirit. She'd opened her heart to the invasion of a demonic spirit. That inner vow had exposed her, made her vulnerable. For 18 years, she battled that spirit, tempted to leave me, to run away, to start over again with somebody else. In the last four or five years of that 18-year span, she began to have horrific nightmares, sexually perverted nightmares. I knew nothing about this. She never shared a whisper to me about it. She was so filled with shame. She said she would sit in the service when I was preaching and vile images would cross her mind's eye. She began to question, am I even saved? Can a Christian think and see those things? Tormented day and night for 18 years because of that stupid decision I made on that evening. All right, come back up to 1993. We're in Kansas City in mid-July. Remember, August is when we actually made the move, but we're up at a conference and in the conference, the speaker was a man by the name of Mike Bickle who runs the International House of Prayer. And he had preached on Tuesday night on Psalm 2, and he came back on Wednesday night, and he started preaching on it again. And about five minutes into the message, closed his Bible. He said, I'll get back to it in a moment. God wants to minister to some of you here tonight. And he called up on stage that man who back in 1990 had prophesied to me my prayers in the hotel room. And that man stood up. Some of you may know him. His name was John Paul Jackson. And John Paul said, I think the Lord wants to minister to those who live in fear of failing God. If that's you, would you stand up? He had about 2,500 people in this auditorium. My wife stands up, and I'm looking. I think, you're a pastor's wife, for heaven's sake. Don't embarrass me. Sit down. And she just begins weeping. And all of a sudden, about four or five ladies come up behind her. They lay hands on her. They just begin to sing in the spirit over her for the next 30 minutes. And I just sat there and looked at it, and tears were just streaming down her face. I finally got up, walked over just to watch this happen. So it was an incredible experience of deliverance, which I know is a controversial topic. We got back to the hotel room. I said, honey, what in the world happened? She said, all I know to say is it felt like this massive gob of black goo came up out of me from my feet, up through my legs, through my chest, and out through my mouth. And she said, for the first time in 18 years, I feel clean. The next day, I have to drive her back to the airport because she has to fly back to Oklahoma to take our daughter to cheerleading camp. So we're driving, and I'm going to stay for the rest of the conference. We're driving to the airport, and I look in my, out of the side of my eye, and I can see Ann sitting next to me going, 
I said, what are you doing? She said, it's gone. I said, what's gone? She said, that voice I've been hearing for the last 18 years. And for the first time, she shared with me what happened on that night back in 1974. And she said, I've been hearing it every day of my life. Sam hasn't made you happy. Don't trust him. God hasn't made you happy. She did this. She said, you come with me. She said, I know it was a demonic spirit, and I got free last night. And then she began to almost quiver and shake in fear. I said, are you okay? She said, I'm afraid it's going to be back home waiting for me. I said, what are you talking? I mean, you're nuts. What do you mean it's going to be back home waiting for you? Sure enough, she went back home. It's Thursday night. The next morning, they have to get up to drive to Oklahoma City to take my daughter to cheerleading camp. And my younger daughter, or my older daughter, Melanie, is with Ann as they're driving, and she said, Mom, I gotta tell you something happened last night. I was afraid to tell you, but I need to tell you. She said, it's about midnight, she said, I went downstairs to get something as I was packing, and I was standing in front of our armoire with a big beveled mirror. She said, I looked in that mirror, she said, I saw a man sitting on the love seat about five feet behind me. She said, I turned around. It was the middle of July, probably 90 degrees outside. She said he was wearing a winter coat. He had a scarf around his neck. He had his legs crossed. He had his elbow on his knee. And he looked at me, and he went. She said, I knew it was evil. And I turned around, and I looked in the mirror, and he was gone. And that's when she ran back upstairs. Now, you make of that what you want. I know precisely what happened. That demonic spirit was trying to jump to the firstborn in our family, but Melanie was wise enough and mature enough to recognize it as evil, and she repudiated it. But why I'm telling you this story, and I'm speaking primarily to the ladies here tonight, but not just the ladies. It may apply to men as well. Some of you have been living with that tormenting voice in your head, and you've been suffering horrific nightmares, and you have lived in shame that has silenced you for many years. And all I can tell you is my wife was gloriously transformed that night, and our marriage was gloriously transformed as well. And when I hear the word deliverance, I say, what a wonderful, beautiful word, because it means freedom from the oppression of the enemy and the restoration of wholeness in Jesus. By the way, that's when Ann told me. She said, you remember that dream? Brock was the name of the guy that gave us the dream. You remember that picture of the woman sitting in the chair crying out, heal me or kill me? I said, yeah. She said, that was me. She said, I, every night I would get up and go sit there and cry out to God, if you don't heal me, if you don't deliver me from this, you've got to kill me. I can't live with this much longer. But she hadn't told me all that until after she had gone through her glorious experience of freedom. I got to move on. I got to speed up. There's so much more I could share with you. Um, real quickly, um, just a couple of, of quick words that we experienced when we got into Kansas City that began to expand my understanding of how the Spirit of God works. It was late in the day. Ann was again the receptionist in the church office, and I was the only one left in the building. All the other pastors had gone home. And she calls up. She says, there's a couple here, a woman and her daughter. They want to meet with a pastor. Can you come downstairs? I said, sure. So I went downstairs, met with them in the prayer room. This lady had just gone down to a university in Texas and taken her daughter out of school, was bringing her back to Kansas City, probably going to commit her to a psychiatric institution because she basically just lost her mind. 
So I'm sitting there with this young girl and trying to figure out what in the world had happened to her. And I said, you know what, let's do, let's just be quiet for a minute. And let's just pray and see if the Spirit of God will give us some guidance. Folks, I'm telling you again, I, all I know is it happened. I, I can't explain it to you. If it hadn't happened to you, you, you'll never know the reality of it. I heard the internal audible voice of God, not external, not like you're hearing my voice now. I've never heard the audible voice of God. Internally, I heard the name Phil. Whoa. So I looked up at her. I said, who's Phil? Boy, her eyes almost popped out of their sockets. She said, how did you know? I said, well, I think the Spirit of God just revealed that to me. She then told me the story, how she had been a virgin her whole life, and her boyfriend, Phil, had taken her over to his mother's house. His, her mother, his mother was a witch. She said there was all sorts of occultic paraphernalia in the house. She said, I gave him my, my purity that night, lost my virginity in, in his mother's bed. She had opened herself up to a demonic presence. So we explored that a bit and prayed, and I said, let's just get quiet again. Maybe the Lord will help us again. We got quiet, and it happened again. I heard the name Martha. So I stopped, and I said, who's Martha? And her mother said, no way. <laughs> I said, who's Martha? She said, we were actually on our way to Martha's house when we stopped off at your church. That's been her spiritual mentor, and we thought she'd give us some good counsel. I said, you know, I think Phil was the problem. I think Marcia may well be the solution. I think that's why God revealed those names to me. Man, all right, let me, let me speed up real quickly, wrap it up in this way. Move up to uh, 1999, early part of 2000. Mike Bickle, our senior pastor, had decided that he was going to resign because he wanted to launch the International House of Prayer. And I knew that it was my time to leave as well because I had gone there to work with Mike. And I had no idea what in the world we were going to do. And in the early fall of 1999, my nephew, who was a student at Wheaton College in Wheaton, Illinois, sent me their school newspaper because on the front cover was a picture of five professors in the Biblical and Theological Studies Department, all of whom were either retiring or resigning. And I began to think, I wonder if I ought to apply to Wheaton College. They wouldn't take me. Why would they? I'm a crazy charismatic in Kansas City of all places. Why would they take me? So I thought about it, and I prayed about it, and um, I wrote up my, my resume, and I sent it in, and didn't hear anything back. It's Wednesday, the day before Thanksgiving. Folks, I'm just telling you this as it happened. I'm sitting in my office. I've got my resume on the, on the table, and I laid hands on it. I said, Lord, I said, I need you to give me some confirmation. Are you calling us to Wheaton College? knock on my door. In walked two Wheaton College students that I knew from Oklahoma. They were driving back to Oklahoma City for Thanksgiving and had this, I said, what are you all doing there? They said, well, we were just riding down I-35 and we thought, hey, let's stop in and see Sam and Ann. I said, Lord, are you talking to me here? Or is this some sort of providential encounter? All right, about a week later, um, I'm sitting there once again with hands on my resume because I had revised it and sent it in. And again, I heard this internal audible voice. You'll hear nothing for five months and then they'll call you. So I, I immediately went downstairs and I told Ann, I said, I don't know if this was me last night's pizza or God, but 
I think the Lord just told me I'm, I'm not going to hear anything for five months and then they're going to call. Folks, five months to the day. This happened on December 1st. On May 1st, Dr. Andrew Hill, department chair, professor of Old Testament, calls me, says, we'd like to fly you up here for an interview. So in the meantime, <laughs> this is going to freak you out because it does me. Every time I tell it, I'm so sorry, but you just have to deal with it. We had launched the International House of Prayer, and I was in the prayer room agonizing with God. Are you really calling me to Wheaton College? You really want me to leave pastoral ministry and move up to Illinois where it's so cold? <laughs> and I was just desperate. I said, Lord, you've got to help me. So I got in my car, and I went home. <laughs> I'm almost embarrassed to tell you this. I walked in, and I heard the Lord say, turn on the TV. I picked up the remote control, I clicked it on, and literally the first words spoken were, so you're an accountant from Wheaton, Illinois. It was Wheel of Fortune. It was Pat Sajak introducing a contestant. And I thought, no. And I sat down in my chair, and every day, I've done it every day then and since then, I always read USA Today newspaper. The Lord said, open the newspaper. I pulled out of my briefcase said, read the section on the NFL. Back in those days, they had a little column where they had each NFL team, and they would, uh, like, you all have the Browns, right? They are an NFL team, aren't they? <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm a Chiefs fan. Forgive me. I'd, I'm sorry. So they had a little column, and they had one paragraph on each team. And my team at that time, I was still a Dallas Cowboys fan. I'm not now. And I read it, and it was about one player, a defensive back named Kenny Wheaton. By that time, I'm just absolutely torn apart. I, have, I can't believe that God is doing this. The next day, the next morning, I'm up in my office. Ann calls up on the intercom, go into the prayer room right now. I said, honey, I'm busy. She said, go to the prayer room right now. I get up and I go down there. There's nobody there. We had a large prayer room that would hold 75 people. And we had a whiteboard that went 20 feet long. We put prayer requests on it. That day, the whiteboard was completely blank except for one thing across the top. www.wheaton.edu. The website address of Wheaton College. I asked everybody on our staff, every, who wrote that? Nobody knew. Bottom line, we had multiple dreams, multiple prophetic words. People knew nothing about whether or not we were considering this. We hadn't shared it with our children. And the Lord eventually moved us to Wheaton where I taught for four years. Now, what's, there are so many other stories that I could share. Maybe I'll share a few more tomorrow night when I talk about the gift of prophecy. The point of it all is this. Folks, if you've ever doubted whether God is. If you've ever questioned whether or not he loves his people and he guides them providentially, whether he does it in surprising and supernatural ways the way he did with me, or whether he does it in a more mundane and routine fashion, don't ever lose sight of the fact that your God loves you, he cares for you, he numbers the hairs on your head, he knows everything about you, and he's in the business of bringing you into greater conformity to his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And my only prayer in sharing this story with you is that you will be 
motivated to go back in prayer to seek the Lord, to open your life to his presence and his power for whatever decision you need to make, whatever's going on in your life, whatever struggle, whatever conflict there may be in your family, and trust that God can intervene in supernatural ways to bring about his purposes. Let's pray. Father, I still even shake my own head when I hear myself telling these stories. And Lord, I know in my heart I'm not a liar. And I don't think Satan would have done any of those things. What purpose would he have had in it? I thank you, Father, that you have moved so gloriously, graciously, and mercifully in my life. And I know that you have done so in the lives of so many here. And I pray that for those who are needing to hear from you, who are needing guidance and confirmation, that you would grant it to them for the glory of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. 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 Thank you, Sam. Why don't you guys give Sam a round of applause? Uh, well, we're going to uh, transition into a, a Q&A time, or as some people say, a Q&R, a question and response. Uh, we, don't, we don't expect you to have all the answers, although uh, maybe you will. So we'll, we'll be surprised here. Um, all right, I wanted to start off with the first question. Now, it's, I'm just going to warn you, it's pretty controversial, and so just do your best, brother, sure. whatever, whatever you're able to do here. Um, pitch clock and MLB, are you for it or against it? Absolutely against it. <laughs> oh, come on. I don't like the DH rule. I don't like, I don't, no, I'm a traditionalist. All right, you and, you and our pastor, Chris Martin, both. You all guys right. can, all right, just kidding. Um, all right, uh, so we solicited questions the last couple weeks with our congregation. I just said, hey, if you got a question, send it into the office, write on a Connect card. And so uh, that's where these questions come from. Um, the first one here I wanted to share with you, and uh, it, it goes like this. It says, I'm in a I believe, help my unbelief mode. For someone like me who up until recently has not been exposed to the supernatural gifts in my daily walk, what are practical steps to being open to the Spirit's power? Uh, the first one is it's not enough to be open. Nowhere does the Bible say be open. It says earnestly desire, zealously yearn for spiritual gifts. Being open is oftentimes an excuse to be cautious. And the word caution implies danger, danger. There's nothing dangerous about the Holy Spirit. The only danger is in disobeying him, mm -hmm. quenching him, grieving him. So don't just be open, be hungry, zealous, continually praying. Immerse yourself in Scripture. Immerse yourself in the Word of God. Read through the book of Acts. Read through the Gospel of Luke. Um, read about how God has operated and ministered to the people of God. And there's nothing in the Scripture to indicate that He, that he doesn't do those things today. Uh, I will share one, another thing to do is read good books. You don't have to read mine. There are a lot of good books out there on the things of the Spirit. And I would encourage, you know, I, when, when I made my transition into the gifts, my wife was very, very reluctant. She really thought I had lost my mind. And she, she came kicking and screaming into the, into the things of the Spirit. And I was at a conference in Dallas speaking, and she stayed behind at the hotel and spent the entire day by the pool reading a book called When the Spirit Comes with Power by John White. John White was a psychiatrist who lived in Canada. And that book absolutely she just lit a fire in her heart. Uh, so read good books. The, the other thing is, and I, I'm saying this just from my own experience, uh, 
the most catalytic, strong uh, force in changing my perspective and helping me, aside from the Word of God itself, is worship. I spent time alone in my car, in my office, in my home, wherever, pouring my heart out before the Lord in praise and celebration and gratitude. And I think God draws near to us and opens us, us, us up to truth and overcomes our unbelief when we exalt Him, we extol Him, when we enjoy Him to His glory. So those would be the primary ways that I would. And, and again, remember something, it's very important. The Spirit of God cannot be forced. He loves to be pursued, but He won't be pushed. Um, so the bottom line is, you know, I've heard this illustration before. You, you want to go sailing, you go buy a book on sailing, you read about it, you learn all the tricks of the trade, you go rent a boat, you hoist the sail, but only God can make the wind blow. And you can do all the right things, you read all the texts of Scripture, you can be in church, be in community and accountability with others, reading good books, worshiping, but only the Spirit can decide when and where and how He will sovereignly blow in your life. So just continue to ask Him to do that. Yeah, no, that's really good. That's really good. Uh, here's another question. It's, it's a little bit similar. It's just slightly different. So if, if you don't have much more to add, that's fine. But one person asked, they said, my journey toward understanding slash experiencing more of the Holy Spirit's power has been full of stunted steps, suspicion, and insecurity. How do I have a heart of gentle love toward myself and my journey when I'm tempted to be impatient and discouraged by my incomplete understanding of all these things? Welcome to the club. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I could have written that. I, I experienced the same thing. We all do. Yeah. You're human, for heaven's sake. Uh, you know, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. None of those things that you say about yourself are true of Him, right? So keep your eyes fixed on the Son of God and the desire to glorify and honor Him and to realize that it's never going to be perfect in this life. You're never going to fully understand. You know, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, we know in part, we prophesy in part. There are going to be steps, three forward, two back, sometimes four back. I think, honestly, when I hear questions like that, uh, I may be wrong, but I don't think I am. I think lingering just beneath the surface of those kinds of questions is fear. And what I mean by that, in my own experience was, I, as I was, and by the way, I came to believe in the gifts of the Spirit. After that encounter with Jack Deere in 1987, I went back home and I just immersed myself in the Word of God. And I began to ask the question, Jack asked me, where is that in the Bible? And I found out that all the arguments for the cessation of the gifts just weren't there. And um, i trying to think, where was I going with that? Um, where was I going with that? Oh, yeah, the fear. And I He's been up since 4 a.m. He had to catch I had, an early I had to get up so. at 4 to get here of, tonight. A lot of folks. grace here. <laughs> um, I realized deep down inside, and I didn't want to admit this, I had watched these horribly manipulative, self-serving, I hate to speak about people like this, because I hope and pray they're brothers and sisters in Jesus, but people who've done really dumb things on a platform in the name of Jesus um, for their own promotion, to get a big offering, uh, to promote their own ministry and their own agenda. I, I can still remember, I'll just tell you a quick story that, that just embodies this, but I'm, what I'm saying is that beneath that question, yeah. if you'll search your soul, it's fear. 
fear of being associated with people that you know bring reproach on the name of Christ and you don't want anything to do with them. And you think, if I give myself, if I continue to go down this path, people are going to point at me and say, oh, so you're like so-and-so. That's right. It's life. Deal with it. All right, I'm sitting up late at night. I'm watching a worship video on, my, on TV. And at the end of it, I, I turn it off, and there's a man on a Christian TV station. You would probably know his name if I mentioned it, but I won't. And he was, quote, unquote, prophesying. And it was horrific. It was self-serving. It was manipulative. It was unbiblical. It was irreverent. And I felt in my, and by the way, at this time, I'd already come to believe in the reality of the gifts. And I just felt my inside just nodding up and thinking, gosh, if that's what it means to move in the direction of the gifts of the Spirit, I don't want anything to do with it. And the Lord just nailed me right then and there. And he basically just impressed on my heart, Sam, so you're going to justify your disobedience to my word because somebody else did it badly. And all of a sudden I realized I had been very faithful to observe the 11th commandment. You know, there are 11. You just thought there were 10. There are 11. The 11th says, thou shalt not do at all what others do poorly. And I had obeyed that commandment. I saw him do it poorly. I'm not going to do it at all. Well, you apply that across the board, you'll never do anything. You ever heard a bad sermon? Not in this church, I'm sure, right? You ever heard a preacher misinterpret the text of Scripture? You don't close your Bible and refuse to ever listen to anybody preach the, the gospel again, do you? You ever seen somebody browbeat an unbeliever trying to win them to faith in Christ? You don't stop evangelizing because of that. This idea that somehow, um, because others have abused gifts and made a mockery of the gospel in the name of themselves, we're not going to do it at all? And I, I honestly, I committed to the Lord that night, and by God's grace, I have been faithful to my commitment. I said, Lord, with your help, I will never again refuse to obey what your word tells me because somebody else has done it really badly. And if you, if you can't make that resolve in your heart, you're probably not going to make much progress going forward. Yeah, wow. That's really good. That's really helpful. Um, well, uh, we did have quite a few questions come in on the topic of deliverance. Um, so let me just read a couple of the questions, sure. and then you respond however, however you feel led. Okay. Um, one person said, uh, somewhat related to the spiritual gift of discerning of spirits, I'm wondering how you view the role of deliverance ministry, i.e. the practice of intentionally praying and commanding against demonization of Christians or non-Christians in a church body. Another question very directly, can Christians be demon-possessed or maybe more accurately demonized? Um, another one, can you please explain a little more about prayers of deliverance? Mm -hmm. It's easy to feel very overwhelmed and uncomfortable with this new-to-me way of seeing the Holy Spirit's power. I've seen it done in ways that can't be denied, and I've also seen it done in ways that feel very off. Either way, I really struggle to not, I really struggle to not be very hesitant, skeptical, and feel like I gotta get out of here. Will someone, will some people live their lives remaining in a place of discomfort with this? Do you believe that's okay? Is this something all believers should strive for, or is it, or is it for some and not for others? Were you able to track with all those? I certainly okay. did. Wherever I you want to go with, with every it. one of them. All right. First of all, unashamed commercial advertisement. Because of this issue, I wrote a book on spiritual warfare. It's called Understanding Spiritual Warfare, a Comprehensive Guide. It's 360 pages long, published by Zondervan. 
and I try to answer every one of those questions in this book. So if you really want to dig deeply, and I have several chapters on deliverance and prayers and different approaches to deliverance. It's called Understanding Spiritual Warfare, a Comprehensive Guide. Now, end of commercial. Um, the question of whether or not a believer can be demonized, first of all, this may come as a surprise to many of you. Do you know the word demon possession is nowhere found in the Bible? It's found in your English translations. It crept in through the King James Version. Some other versions have kept it. New Testament never talks about demon possession. The Greek verb is daimonizomai, demonized. A demonized individual is the one who has an indwelling demonic spirit that is then subsequently cast out. But I don't like the language demon possession because it conjures up notions of the exorcist. I don't know if any of you ever saw it. Don't go if you haven't. Um, and, you know, vomiting pea soup and your head spinning on your, you know, on your neck. Um, demon possession is just bad language. It just doesn't help. Demonized. Now, here's the interesting thing. I have a whole chapter in my book on spiritual warfare on can a Christian be demonized. And the bottom line is this, there is no one text of Scripture that says yes or no, explicitly in the New Testament. There are all sorts of arguments for and against. I try to answer every single one of them. I'll let you decide when you read that chapter, if you get the book, whether I, whether I did it well. In fact, you don't have to buy the book. If you go to my, my website, samstorms.org, and just type into the search engine, can a Christian be demonized? And I have two articles there. I go through every argument. But there's no text that definitively says, yes, a Christian can be demonized, no, a Christian can't. So where does that leave us? I, now I know probably most of you are going to disagree with me. I do believe a Christian can be demonized. I think my wife was, and she believes that she was as well. Um, now, I know the all sorts of objections, but you're born again. The Holy Spirit lives in you. Christ redeemed you by the blood. You're the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's all true, but... I don't think those are valid arguments against the possibility that a Christian can willfully open their life to the intrusion of a demonic spirit. Two texts of Scripture are the most um, persuasive to me. Ephesians chapter 4, where Paul says, don't let the sun go down on your anger and don't give the enemy or the devil an opportunity or foothold. And the Greek word translated opportunity or foothold is tapas. We got our word topography from it. It means a place. In fact, everywhere it's used in the New Testament, it talks about a, a localized place. He's saying if you linger in sin, unconfessed and unrepentant, and you nurture that sin, in this case it's anger, <clears throat> you are giving the enemy a place in your life. I do believe a Christian can, through unconfessed, unrepentant sin, open the door to a demonic spirit. Um, the other one is 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where Paul is telling the Corinthians. Remember, some of these Corinthian Christians, on their way to church to sit at the Lord's table, were stopping off at the pagan temples and were partaking in pagan feasts before idols. And Paul said, he said, I don't want you to be partakers of demons. Do you know what that Greek word is, partaker there? Koinonia, communion. It's the same word that he uses in the same passage and says, I want you to be partakers of Christ when you receive the bread and the cup. So when you receive the bread and the cup in the Lord's Supper, what are you doing? You're opening yourself up to the influence of the Spirit of God, bringing to even greater awareness in your life the reality of who Jesus is and what he did for you. You go and you sit at a pagan sacrifice and you partake of their 
their meals and you engage in their worship, you're koinoniing, you're partaking, you're communing with demons. He's saying that to Christians. Now, does that definitively prove that they could be demonized as a result of that? Probably not, but boy, it comes close. Now, here's my final conclusion on that. I don't think it really matters, honestly. Whether a demon is harassing you from the sound booth, not pointing any questions at you two people back there, <laughs> or sitting on my shoulder or inside my head, the fact of the matter is you have authority in the name of Jesus Christ to cast it out. Every one of you, I would pray, would go home tonight and read Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 20. Incredible story. Jesus sends out 72 disciples. They're unnamed. They're anonymous. They're not apostles. They're not elders. They're not pastors. Average followers of Jesus. He commissions them to go out, proclaim the kingdom, heal the sick. Remember what happens? Verse 17. They come back rejoicing. Jesus, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Not subject to us. Subject to us in your name, under your authority. And Jesus said, I have given you authority over all the power of the enemy. You're going to tread on serpents and scorpions. That's Old Testament language for demons. And nothing shall hurt you. Listen, folks, every single one of you, not just the guys who sit up on a platform and preach, every one of you, if you know Christ, has the authority of the risen Savior over the power of the demonic. And you should never cower in fear. I, I, one of the most frustrating things in my ministry over the years has been when we've had somebody manifest a demonic presence in the service or out in the lobby, and they come running to me, oh, Sam, come, come, we need your help. Come cast the demon out. I said, no, you do it. Well, you think, you think I've got more authority than you just because I went to seminary? Where does the Bible say that? You have authority, you individual Christians, in the name of Christ to take authority over the demonic and help people get set free. Now, this opens up a hole. Hey, we're in it. Let's do it. Deliverance doesn't always happen instantaneously. It didn't even happen for Jesus. Remember it says, and he was telling the demon to leave. That's right. The, the Greek tense means was repeatedly having to tell it. It was resistant. It was defiant. Remember in Mark 9, um, the father, the man comes to Jesus and says, your disciples weren't able to cast a demon out of my boy. And it turned out this boy had been demonized from infancy. And Jesus, when the disciples later come to Jesus and said, why couldn't we cast the demon out? Remember what Jesus said? This kind does not come out except by prayer and fasting. This kind of demon. In other words, you bumped up against a really powerful demonic spirit. There are levels of power and authority in the demonic realm, folks. And some demons are more powerful than others. And sometimes it takes a considerable amount of time of prayer and fasting. So don't tell the demon and it goes. Tell the demon to leave until it goes. Persevere and persist in the authority that you've been given in Christ. Gosh, what else was in that question? Um, it isn't just meant for a few. All Christians have this authority. All Christians are responsible to help facilitate the freedom and deliverance of anybody who's being oppressed. Now again, I don't think that a whole bunch of Christians are running around with indwelling demonic spirits. Some of them are. Most, however, just, just being oppressed, you're being taunted, you're being, um, you know, Ephesians 6 talks about the fiery missiles of the enemy raining down upon us. You know, you're sitting there, for example, tonight, and all of a sudden, out of the blue, you have this horrifically perverted thought enter your mind. You go, oh, where did that come from? 
or you're reminded suddenly of a sin in the past that you thought was behind you and it just brings up feelings of shame and guilt. Where did that come from? Probably those missiles of the enemy just pouring down upon you. What does Paul say? Lift up the shield of faith, put on the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and, and, and resist and defy it. So spiritual warfare happens at all, different, all sorts of levels. But here's the one thing you should remember, and I, I wish I could take uh, credit for this, but I can't. A man by the name of Neil Anderson um, used this image. He said, spiritual warfare is not a tug of war. What's tug of war? You ever been in, done tug of war? You're, you're on a level playing field with other people and you're pulling back and forth and you don't know who's going to win and finally one team pulls the rope across the line. That's, that's not spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare is a vertical chain of command. You're not on a level playing field with the demonic. You're in Christ above and demons are subject to us in Christ's name and they go at your command. So don't ever think that you're in a tug of war, you're pulling, Satan's pulling back, you don't know who's going to win. You've been seated with Christ in heavenly places, Ephesians chapter 2. Forgive my language, but just say to the demon, get the hell out of here. That's the only time you can use that word, okay? <laughs> and tell him, go to hell. Seriously, go to hell. Go where Jesus sends you. And you're not cursing when you say that. You mean it. So again, it's a vertical chain of command, not a horizontal tug of war. That's really good. On that. Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, what about this one They're here? They're going to go home and say, the guest preacher cussed in our platform tonight. <laughs> no, he didn't. Don't That's he okay. Didn't. I, I think you're good. Um, what, uh, what has the gift of tongues looked like in the church that you most recently led? And was the, uh, is interpretation a gift you've seen used regularly? Tongues is a part of my daily prayer life. I was praying in tongues while we were singing, but I did it in a way that nobody else could hear because in the corporate gathering of the church, if there's tongues, there has to be interpretation. Very clear in 1 Corinthians 14. Um, in my 14 years as lead pastor at Bridgeway, believe it or not, there was never an incident in which somebody spoke in tongues in the corporate gathering on Sunday morning. Never once. If they had, we would have paused. I said, all right, does anybody have the interpretation? And we would have waited. I'm confident that somebody would have had it. Maybe several people would. Um, now, I've seen it happen in smaller group gatherings, but it never happened in the corporate gathering in our church. Um, I don't know why, because I, I certainly didn't discourage it. I just said, look, Paul says, there's no one there to interpret. Keep silent. Pray to yourself and pray to God. Um, so, not everybody, I don't believe, God, this is a huge topic. I do not believe that God intends for every Christian to have the gift of tongues. I don't think there's any one spiritual gift that all believers are supposed to have. Now, having said that, if you really, really want that gift, if the Lord has just burdened you with it, press in in prayer. And I think, I can't guarantee it, but I think he'll give it to you. But that doesn't mean that if he doesn't, you're somehow sub-Christian or God doesn't love you as much as he loves those to whom he has given the gift. Um, just thank him for the gifts that he has given you and use them to build up others and to glorify Jesus. Um, so what else could I say about that? No, I think that's good. So you didn't actively discourage it, but you had some parameters, very clear parameters mm -hmm. for the corporate gathering. Sure. Would you say, is it fair to say you mostly encouraged it 
in smaller settings or? Yeah, in our, in our prayer meetings, for example. I remember during COVID, um, although we weren't meeting on Sunday morning for a while, we still met for our weekly prayer meeting every Wednesday from noon to one. We were all scattered out, you know, social distancing and all that stuff. Didn't you all just hate that? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Oh, well, we did it. We're over it, thank God. But only believers were present. Remember, now remember, 1 Corinthians 14 is a unique context. Paul is talking about the corporate gathering of the entire body of Christ, the purpose of which is to instruct and build up other believers. In order for that to happen, what you say has to be intelligible, right? You can't, you can't be build up somebody else. If somebody just started speaking in Spanish to me right now, they could be speaking John 3.16. I wouldn't have a clue what they're saying. I'm not being built up. I don't understand it. So Paul is saying when you're gathered together in a corporate gathering and the purpose is to instruct and build each other up, there has to be interpretation. He says also if an unbeliever comes in and they hear you speaking in languages they can't understand, they're going to conclude that you're nuts. That's why you have to have interpretation in the corporate gathering. But what about meetings that have a different purpose? What about meetings that are populated only by believers, people that you know? And the purpose of it is simply to pray and worship. So in our prayer meetings, we permit people to pray in tongues without interpretation because they're not speaking to anybody there. They're speaking to God. They're praising Him. They're giving thanks. They're praying to Him. Uh, it's a vertical orientation, not horizontal. So in our small group gatherings, as long as there's not an unbeliever who's visiting, we would say, sure, you're free to pray openly in tongues if the Lord leads you to do so. And you don't need to have to have, to have, to have an interpretation. Sometimes you'll get one, but you don't have to. Because the purpose of your speaking in that context isn't horizontal. It's not for the sake of other people. It's for the sake of worshiping God, praising God, and giving thanks to God. Yeah, that's good. Um, so I, as I was sharing with you earlier today, our church has been kind of on a slow journey and coming into the gifts of the Spirit and thinking through some of these things. Um, although for many, many years, we've had uh, kind of a James 5 practice when it comes to healing. You know, we've made that available and open and have, and have done that. Um, so in regards to that, you know, you mentioned Luke 10 earlier when Jesus sends out the 72. Mm -hmm. um, how does James 5 fit into a theology of healing? And should only elders pray for healing or can anybody? Every Christian should pray for healing. James 5, 16, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. Now, yes. You have extreme cases. Why does he have to call for the elders? Because he's probably so sick he can't go to them. Mm. Furthermore, it says, and they pray over him. You know, that's the only place in the New Testament where the preposition over is used with prayer, indicating the most likely he's laid out on his bed and they're praying mm. over him. So we're talking about an extreme case. Elders are called because they're the shepherds of the church. But he doesn't restrict prayer to the elders because he says, as I said in verse 16, to everybody. Yeah. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. Why confess your sins? Because oftentimes it's unconfessed, unrepentant sin that blocks what otherwise God would like to do. In fact, I've, I found nine times out of ten, that might be too high, eight, <laughs> unforgiveness in some form is the barrier to receiving your healing. 
you're harboring unforgiveness towards somebody somewhere. You just can't let it go. And you nurture that bitterness and that anger and that resentment in your heart. And I know that some of you have been so deeply wounded and abused by others, you think I'm, I'm minimizing the pain. I'm not. I'm just telling you, unforgiveness can eat away at your soul, and it can be a hindrance to what the Spirit of God wants to do for you. Confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another so that you may be healed. That's good. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because in that James 5 passage, he even makes the point. He says Elijah was a man like right. you, or, you or me, you know, and, and um, that's good. Yeah. People say, oh, Elijah, he was in a class all by himself. What an incredible man. Well, the power, signs, and wonders he performed. James is saying, no, he wasn't in a class all by himself. Yeah. He's just as weak as you are, just as unbelieving, just as filled with doubt and struggles as you are. And yet he prayed, and it didn't rain for three and a half years, and he prayed again, and the heavens opened up. Elijah is our model because he's a man of like nature with us. Mm, that's good. All right, maybe one more here? Sure. We'll get, we'll get you all out of here tonight. Um, what's your best argument against cessationism? The Bible. <laughs> all right. <laughs> I would mic drop it, but uh, okay. these are expensive. I'll talk about this tomorrow night when I talk about prophecy. Acts chapter 2, day of Pentecost. You all know the story well. Peter, quoting Joel, said, In the latter days I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and they will prophesy. Old men will dream dreams, young men will have visions on your handmaidens, young women, old women, all God's people who receive the Spirit will prophesy. The latter days in the New Testament does not refer to the days just before the coming of Christ. The latter days is the whole church age in which we live. That's right. Peter's saying, let me tell you what's going to characterize the entire present age between the two comings of Jesus. God's pouring out His Spirit. You're going to have dreams and you're going to have visions and you're going to prophesy. That's characteristic of this whole church age. That's just one text. Uh, gosh, Ephesians 4.11, apostles, prophets, evangelists, prof pastors, and teachers building up the body until it reaches full maturity. Well, when will that be? When Jesus comes back. Yeah. Actually, here's the ironic thing, and I'll close on this because I know they want to go home. 1 Corinthians 13 used to be the go-to text for the cessationist, and now I don't know of a single cessationist who appeals to 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, I have a very good friend named Tom Schreiner. Tom teaches New Testament at Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. He's probably regarded as one of the top three or four New Testament scholars in the evangelical world as a whole. Yeah. Tom's a cessationist. Tom says, if there's one passage of Scripture that, that would convince me to be a continuationist, <laughs> it's 1 Corinthians 13, hmm. where Paul says, you will pray, you will prophesy, you will experience tongues until the perfect comes. And he says, there's no way you can get around it. The perfect is a reference to that perfected state of affairs in the new heavens and the new earth when Christ returns to make all things right. Because he says that's when we'll see as we are seen, we'll know as we are known, we'll see face to face. Everybody who's looked at that saying, you know, those charismatics are right. I mean, it's, it's so explicit. Those gifts are gonna continue until the perfect comes. Yeah. And that's the perfected state of affairs that Jesus brings. It's not the canon of scripture no cessationist of, 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 of any, I'm sounding arrogant. No cessationist worth his salt. 
<laughs> will appeal to 1 Corinthians 13 anymore. They just, they've realized it's, it's an argument for the other side. Yeah. There's so many other texts I could give you. but No, that's really good. Um, I said the Bible. Isn't that enough? It is enough. It is enough. We love the Bible around here. Okay. Thank you so much, Sam. That was very helpful. Thank you. Well, just a reminder, uh, leaders will be back here tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. back in the fellowship hall. Uh, we'll have just an informal time with Sam to get to ask him questions about what does it look like to begin to practice the gifts inside small groups and other uh, elements of our church. And so I want to encourage you to prioritize that and be here. Um, everyone else will be back here tomorrow night at 7 p.m. Uh, we'll start with some worship. Sam's going to be talking about the gift of prophecy. And so we'd really encourage you to make that a priority. And telling some more stories. And telling some more stories, which we love. Um, Sam, actually, would you close us in prayer? Sure. Thank you. Father, we thank you that your heart is filled with joy and delight over broken, weak, sinful, immature children like us. It's what we all are. And you just love us so much. You love us so much. You grant us the fullness of your spirit to help us grow up in Christ help us minister in power for the building up of the body. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. See you tomorrow night.